Hey everybody, I'm going to do another In the Stacks today as a bonus for the patrons. This is going to be on a regularly produced series. It's going to allow me to expound upon some book or other that I've read without having to do a whole pre-written, polished episode dealing with it. I thought people might be interested in my thoughts on some other books that don't directly impact some of the symbolic um, explorations we've been doing here, but uh, I have a little Shostakovich playing in the background. Hopefully you enjoyed that, but uh, the reason for this will become apparent. Of course, Shostakovich is a Soviet-era Russian composer. And the book that I have just finished reading is The Ghost, The Secret Life of CIA Spymaster James Jesus Angleton. I always say James Jesus Angleton. That should be James Jesus Angleton. But uh, I actually think that's kind of interesting that uh, Angleton was always a little embarrassed by this. Latin or Hispanic sounding middle name. But maybe it was the Jesus part that bothered him as well. Some interesting stuff going on with the name um, in terms of what has come to be called nominative determinism or an aptronym, if you will. Um, I'll get into that in a moment because I should probably uh, say who James Jesus Angleton was, if you don't know. And he was essentially the founder of the practice of counterintelligence in the United States government. And... Is the CIA the United States government? Yeah, I think it is. Unofficially, you know, it's the deep state. The unelected, unaccountable part of who governs us. Um, but anyway, obviously this is a CIA spook book. Angleton was like the ultimate spook, a.k.a. the ghost maybe the most influential spook who ever lived, perhaps second to Alan Dulles. Um, so he's inherently interesting for that fact alone, but it isn't just that. There's so much about him as a person that I think is really intriguing and you know I feel like I am cursed to be someone who has really good ideas for books and no ability to really write them and uh, this is probably more of a failure of will than anything else but also, you know, when am I going to have time to do this? I'm working on a podcast at any free moment that I have outside of work and my family. But 
whatever. Anyway, Angleton and his life, I think, would make an amazing book that's somewhere between a John Le Carre spy novel and something more, slightly more postmodern, I guess. The book I'm thinking of is Libra by Don DeLillo, which is a biographical novel about Lee Harvey Oswald. But there's a kind of framing device where you have this uh, investigator who's going through the CIA files, and that's what gives it its kind of somewhat postmodern subjectivist framework, um, which I think would work really well with the case of Angleton. Um, I don't want to get too deep into this, but um, ambiguity plays a fundamental role in Angleton's life and work. But that's not inherently postmodern exactly. Although I do think it's interesting that his career spans the time period between the rise to prominence of new criticism in the study of English literature to the rise to prominence of postmodernism as the dominant frame for interpreting literature. And pretty much from the time that postmodernism begins to emerge, this is where Angleton's career goes south and begins to have diminishing returns. He begins to devote himself more and more to delusions. And the great spy master becomes someone who is routinely fooled and fails. And he becomes more and more of a kind of alcoholic dinosaur, a man caught in the net of the times that he himself helped to create. So I think that would be an interesting thing to track as we go through his life in a novel where you go from a highly modernist style to a postmodernist style. And this isn't something that you would have to just impose upon the book as something that is, you know, so, so kind of a, a far-flung, you know, Joycean parallel. Uh, it's actually organic to Angleton himself. And why is that? Well, this has to do with a really interesting aspect of Angleton, which is that he came out of the study of literature and poetry in particular. Uh, an amateur poet and critic himself who came out of the Ivy League studying under the early new critics 
a huge fan of T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound. He edited a literary journal called Furioso, which has a very Poundian kind of flavor to it. Actually published Pound in Furioso. Uh, I, I haven't read this. Uh, the book does mention it. Uh, Pound's own contributions were kind of less than satisfying to Angleton, who wanted poetry and got, you know, some kind of crankish stuff on monetary policy, which is what, you know, Pound was really interested in at the time. But he was he was a correspondent to Pound. And he had, his father had business connections in Italy. And Angleton as a child was partially raised there. The elder Angleton, by the way, was a Freemason, which is interesting to know because of the role of Italian Freemasonry in the later P2 scandal, which I don't think I'll get into at this moment. But um, the point is that Angleton was trained in Poetry and literary criticism. That's pretty fascinating, right? And people always ask, what the hell are you going to do with an English degree? Well, you could found counterintelligence in the modern world, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's not, not likely. But one of Angleton's books, I'm going to skip this track. This is too, this is too much for right now. Can we do some Beethoven? Yeah, this is all right. I don't even know if you can hear that. Um, where was I? Yeah, so one of Angleton's favorite books, a great influence on him. I'm gonna have to read this at some point. And I'm probably gonna do an In the Stacks, hopefully, um, at some point when I reread. Um, Delillo's Libra. Um, geez, I should do a whole series on Kennedy assassination related lit. Could do Mailer. Um, Harlot's Ghost, by the way, by Norman Mailer, uh, has an Angletonian character in it. Uh, if you ever saw the movie The Good Shepherd, that's kind of partially based on. Angleton as well um, but anyway there's a book called Seven Types of Ambiguity was that by Empson? yes it was by Empson um, I should read this one as well but this was uh, this was the book that influenced James Jesus Ingleton. <laughs> Angleton, more than anything else. Which means that this fairly popular, but within the sphere of literary criticism, so, i.e., quite obscure, actually, book was extraordinarily influential in the practice of intelligence gathering 
for the American Empire. I'm sure that strategic ambiguity had a lot to do with what Angleton did. Are conspiracy theorists prepared to approach history with this kind of attitude looking for seven layers of ambiguity in events? No, we are not nearly that sophisticated. But the people who made history, some of them at least, really were working on that level. Now this, I don't want to make Angleton out to be this great mastermind more than he was, although lots of people thought he was a genius. And he probably was. I mean, people have a hard time accepting the fact that one could be a genius and fail at everything at the same time. Because I think that's what happened with Angleton. But anyway, there's, there's all kinds of aspect to Angleton as a character that I think just makes him inherently intriguing. You know, obviously he's this learned literary spy and he had these eccentric hobbies like growing orchids and fly fishing. This brings me back to the uh, nominative determinism idea with James Angleton because that last name, I mean, Angleton, you know, angling is fishing, of course. This is one of his great hobbies. He was supposed to be this great fisherman. This is what he did to unwind when he wasn't reading Pound and Elliot growing orchids and corrupting American democracy, creating a shadow government that would destroy our republic probably forever. And, you know, the idea of the angle is inherently calls to mind deception and trying to get something over on somebody you know what's his angle what's your angle angularity is about indirectness and strategy yeah What's in a name? What's what? What is hidden in words? You know, other than seven types of ambiguity, what one of Angleton's most favorite pieces of literature was T.S. Eliot's Gerontian, uh, probably one of the best Eliot poems overall, and. 
yeah, certainly the best early poem. I guess, um, you know, this is another one that uh, Pound had some influence on. I don't, I don't remember if he edited it to the extent that he edited The Wasteland. I think he did have some influence on cutting it down. Uh, and he, I know that he discouraged Eliot from including this as a kind of prologue or, or the first poem in the Wasteland collection. But anyway, um, I'm going to go ahead and read that poem. I just thought, I thought that would be a, a nice thing to do for this episode. So let's do that. This is Gerontian, which you should know in Greek means little old man. It begins with this short epigraph. Thou hast nor youth nor age, but as it were an after-dinner sleep, dreaming of both. Here's the poem proper. Here I am, an old man in a dry month, being read to by a boy, waiting for rain. I was neither at the hot gates, nor fought in the warm rain, nor knee-deep in the salt marsh, heaving a cutlass, bitten by flies, fought. My house is a decayed house, and the Jew squats on the windowsill, the owner, spawned in some estaminet of Antwerp, blistered in Brussels, patched and peeled in London. The goat coughs at night in the field overhead, rocks, moss, stone crop, iron, mares. The woman keeps kitchen, makes tea, sneezes at evening, poking the peevish gutter. I, an old man, a dull head among windy spaces. Signs are taken for wonders. We would see a sign, the word within a word, unable to speak a word, swaddled with darkness. In the juvenescence of the year came Christ the Tiger. In depraved May, dogwood and chestnut, flowering Judas, to be eaten, to be divided, to be drunk, among whispers, Mr. Silvero, with caressing hands, at Limoges, who walked all night in the next room, by Hakagawa bowing among the Titians, by Madame de Tornquist in the dark room, shifting the candles, Fraulein von Kopp, who turned in the hall, one hand on the door, vacant shuttles weave the wind. I have no ghosts. An old man in a drafty house under a windy knob. After such knowledge, what forgiveness? Think now, history has many cunning passages, contrived corridors, and issues deceives with whispering ambitions, guides us by vanities. Think now she gives when our attention is distracted, and what she gives, gives with such supple confusions that the giving famishes the craving, gives too late what's not believed in, or is still believed in memory only, reconsidered passion, gives too soon into weak hands what's thought can be dispensed with till the refusal propagates a fear. Think. Neither fear nor courage saves us. Unnatural vices are fathered by our heroism. 
virtues are forced upon us by our impudent crimes. These tears are shaken from the wrath-bearing tree. The tiger springs in the new year. Us he devours. Think at last we have not reached conclusion when I stiffen in a rented house. Think at last I have not made this show purposeless, purposelessly. And it is not by any consultation of the backward devils. I would meet upon you this I would meet you upon this honestly. I that was near your heart was removed therefrom to lose beauty in terror, terror in inquisition. I have lost my passion. Why should I need to keep it, since what is kept must be adulterated? I have lost my sight, smell, hearing, taste, and touch. How should I use it for your closer contact? These with a thousand small deliberations protract the profit of their chilled delirium, excite the membrane when the sense has cooled with pungent sauces, multiply variety in a wilderness of mirrors. What will the spider do? Suspend its operations? Will the weevil delay? De Bailhash, Fresca, Mrs. Camel, whirled beyond the circuit, beyond the circuit of the shuddering bear in fractured atoms. Gull against the wind in the windy straits of Belle Isle, or running on the horn, white feathers in the snow, the gulf claims, and an old man driven by the trades to a sleepy corner. Tenants of the house, thoughts of a dry brain in a dry season. Well, that's very, very intriguing poem. Like a lot of Eliot, it's, it's built out of these fragments. There's a despair about it and just a lot of incredibly memorable imagery. I'm not going to do a reading of this poem in a sense of interpretation, um, but I will point out that that line about the wilderness of mirrors you're going to you'll see it crop up a lot in relation to spy stuff i think there's even a book another book regarding angleton that is called wilderness of mirrors um and that comes from angleton taking it from this poem which he applied i think to the soviets uh practice of deception or maybe he was applying it to spycraft in general i, I don't quite remember but anyway uh, that comes from Eliot and it's very relevant. However, you know, if I was writing that book, I would take this verse that begins after such knowledge, what forgiveness. Think now history has many cunning passages, contrived corridors and issues to seize with whispering ambitions, guide us by vanities. And it ends with vices are, sorry, virtues are forced upon us by our impudent crimes these tears are shaken from the wrath-bearing tree. Uh, I'd probably use that as my epigraph because it seems so relevant to Angleton and this infernal practice of Cold War politics. 
and actually the whole the whole poem seems to be relevant but uh you know people could go read that full thing for themselves anyway this is not a conspiracy book per se I really think the only like if you're into spy stuff and the CIA in general you know you're gonna like this it's pretty well done it's like not it's not like red-pilled or whatever it's a fairly solid book on these issues from a mainstream journalistic perspective it does suggest that Angleton knew what was going on with Oswald and maybe was the man who was behind the Kennedy assassination. It points in that direction without suggesting it. I mean, the, the difference between like a conspiracy book and a book that's just on the actual, <laughs> what we know about the history of the CIA is that, you know, the more respectable mainstream book is not going to make claims beyond what it can demonstrate, right? So it's like that, but it's pretty well done. I notice here there's a blurb from Tim Weiner who wrote Legacy of Ashes, which is a history of the CIA. I read that a couple years ago. Um, that book to me, you know, just screams limited hangout. Um, it was basically compiled from the CIA's own internal history, which why would you think that would be anything but, you know, scrubbed squeaky clean? Not exactly because it goes into, you know, the many, many subversions of and covert ops to overthrow, you know, interfere in elections and overthrow democratically elected governments. I mean, these are things that the CIA admits to doing um, and that's what limited hangout is you admit to things that you have no choice but to tell the truth about um, or to things that don't hurt you that much at this point so that you could say you've cleaned up your act and it's to deflect from some other things that you don't want to admit to um, yeah so anyway but this book uh, you know, you can infer a lot of things above and beyond what it what it actually says. Um, just to give kind of a overview of Angleton's career, you know, he was an OSS man, so he's like an OG in the intelligence community. Like I said, he had those Italian connections, so that's where he was. At the end of World War II. And there's a bit of an irony there, right? Because at the end of World War II, Pound, a friend of Angleton's, uh, maybe the person that he admired most in his early days, who was making pro-fascist speeches on behalf of Mussolini and against, against the Allies, on the radio in Italy and this is what got Pound locked up and tried for treason and he was not executed which he could have been because he was declared to be insane 
was Pound insane? I mean, this is... I, I don't know. I haven't looked into this. I would probably say no. He's extremely eccentric person. Was he... Was he mad? Was he mentally ill? Yeah, I don't know. Probably say no. But anyway, so while Pound is being locked up and Mussolini is having his corpse defiled and his mistress's corpse being publicly beaten with sticks, as I recall, but... Pound's friend, Angleton, is in charge of cleaning out Italy and getting rid of any lingering Nazi or Axis sympathetic spies in the area. Now, of course, I mean, the book doesn't go too much into detail on this. What do we, we know what happened after World War II in, in related, relation to a lot of valuable Nazi assets in terms of, of people is that the CIA recruited them. You know, they didn't get rid of them. Because the moment that the war ended, the U.S. had no more beefs with the National Socialists or the Fascists. They had a beef with the Soviet Union. So the Nazis would have been very useful. So yeah, he he probably wasn't, you know, simply... I mean, he's ma probably making contacts with these people. What the book does talk about is that he made important mafia contacts at this point. And this led to a working relationship over a long period of time with the mafia. And of course, this bears fruit with the, uh, the anti-Castro stuff and... Of course, the JFK assassination, which had a lot to do with the Cuban situation, with the Bay of Pigs invasion and the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, this brings up something else that really irked me with Legacy of Ashes. The portrait of Kennedy that Legacy of Ashes portrays is that Kennedy, Robert Kennedy even more so, JFK to a certain extent, were ardent cold warriors. And therefore, the inference is that the CIA would have no reason to kill Kennedy over the issue of communism in Cuba, because, or, or, or the Vietnam War, say. Uh, and I think probably the Vietnam issue is maybe uh, overblown uh, by like Oliver Stone and people like that. You know, we don't, uh, I don't know, know if we know enough about what Kennedy would have done. We know what LBJ did, for sure, right? Um, but and and this is what like anti JFK conspiracy leftists or progressives will say sometimes about JFK, is that you know he wasn't that progressive of a guy. He wasn't that left wing, so he wasn't that much of an enemy to the. Pentagon or the CIA or these the military industrial complex so they didn't have that much of a motivation to kill him okay here's the problem with that is that you don't understand how completely insanely 
pro-war right wing like Doctor Strange love level crazy a lot of these guys were Dulles and General LeMay and all these guys they wanted a preemptive strike on the Soviet Union if they could get away with it they wanted Castro out of there JFK in the Cuban Missile Crisis got the missiles out of Cuba through diplomacy but they didn't just want missiles out of Cuba they wanted communism out of Cuba and they already had an axe to grind after Bay of Pigs when JFK wouldn't support them with uh, air support huge humiliation I mean that alone would have been motivation enough so anyway I think motive is there. Motive is there. Um, another thing that's interesting, going back to the Italy days when they were trying to keep Italy, I mean, that, this is the main thing. They were trying to keep Italy from going, post-war Italy from going communist as well. Angleton did something that's interesting and I think proved to be very influential, which is that he had an idea to heavily promote this film in Italian th that they wanted to put in Italian theaters put a lot of backing behind it this movie called and I, I should look into this a little bit more but it's called Ninochka uh, it's an Ernst Lubitsch comedy that's got Greta Garbo in it and it's like set uh, during I think the early days of the Russian Revolution and it's like a romantic comedy it has to do with like stolen jewels or something like that um, but anyway it's very anti-Soviet right so this sets up something that I think just continues to this day which is that ho the use of Hollywood as a, a pro pro-Western pro-military anti-Russian anti-Soviet um, vehicle there's always been this paranoia about communists in Hollywood. It's kind of an interesting thing. I mean, yeah, I think there were communists in Hollywood, but I still think that uh, more than anything, Hollywood is an unofficial arm of the American empire. And you've got a CIA liaison office there. The the way that films are made with military uh you know, de defense department collaboration and consultation, and they have to approve a lot of these things that use military technology. I mean, that relationship there, you think this is, you know, this is pro-communist, uh, is very strange. Um, if you watch the movie Barton Fink, it's actually a lot of what Barton Fink is about, because Barton is a communist. And he has to be disciplined in the end of the movie by a studio head who is dressed in military regalia saying that, you know, Fink needs to grow up because there's a war on. Yeah, I mean, this is just saying what Hollywood is. So anyway, yeah, uh, Angleton, very influential, right? He's a guy who has the... The Oswald file, 
for years. He knew about Oswald's whereabouts as far as whatever the CIA knew about Oswald, he knew. He controlled that file. Um, so was he running Oswald as an agent, as a double agent? Um, I mean, even if Oswald just was what he seems to be on the surface, that would have been in his wheelhouse because it's counterintelligence. But anyways, I, I definitely think there's a lot more going on there. Um, but the ironies, the ironies about Angleton, how counterproductive he was, you know, he seemed to trust all of the wrong people. Famously, he had this relationship with Kim Philby, a British double agent that uh, defected to the Soviet Union eventually because he had been spying for them for years. And this is one of the people that Angleton vouched for. Angleton also had a very close relationship with the burgeoning state of Israel. Felt very at home there. When he died, there was a monument to Angleton in Israel. He, they had a kind of ceremony for him there. Uh, this is a bit ironic too, I guess, um, because, you know, going back to his furioso pound Italian fascist days, Angleton had shared Pound's anti-Semitism and, you know, it was kind of a, a that kind of fascist anti-Semitic uh, thing was kind of like in vogue among avant-garde literary types, you know, under Pound and Eliot's influence. And he sort of drops that stuff later in order to work with Israel uh, when he is assured and by his contacts there that Israel would not be aligned with the Soviet Union, that they were anti-communist. Um, but hey, is that actually, is that even ironic or is it just fitting? Is that just, is that just right? Is that just right? Um, it's calling to me that another thing this book suggests is that Israel started its nuclear weapons program by a private Jewish-run um, processing plant. I don't know exactly what it is that handled uh, enriched uranium, which they got under the auspices of the U.S. government and lost a very, very, very suspiciously large portion of it. So the conclusion is that this went directly to Israel to found their nuclear weapons program. Um, and this has never been proven, but it just seems the most likely scenario. And... Kim Philby, if he didn't, sorry, not Kim Philby, uh, James Angleton, if he wasn't directly aware of this, he didn't help. If he hadn't been aware of it, he probably wouldn't have cared. Um, you know, also during this time, uh, 
you know, he should have had advanced uh, knowledge of things like the Six Day War. You know, he never got any good intel out of his relationship with Israel on, on the part of, from the U.S. perspective, you know, of their foreign policy. It was almost like he was, in fact, the double agent for Israel. A great friend of Israel, as they like to say. Um, you know, I don't have an issue per se with there being a state of Israel. But I'm bothered by the Israel lobby and I'm bothered by why the American government doesn't demand that if we have a relationship with Israel that we ask what we get out of it first. What do they do for us? And maybe that's a bad attitude, you know. I'm not a communist, I guess, enough to abandon the idea that if you're running a country, you should look out for your people first and foremost. But anyway, um, so yeah, I don't like the idea of the people that are supposed to be responsible for protecting U.S. interests actually working for something else secretly. Um, I'm not too happy with, like, you could, I, I'm not, like, singling out Israel as being the sole bad guys here. Britain has done similar things. I mean, we've had British spies here. We certainly did in the days before World War II under FDR. Uh, Washington was crawling with British spies with the aim of getting U.S. into World War II. Um, and now that's treated by mainstream historians as kind of a like cutesy sort of thing because World War II is the good war. It's kind of a charming, you know, haha. Uh, we had these guys like running the spiring, you know, secretly dragging the U.S. into the good war. Um, whatever. I mean, from what I know of the founding of the state of Israel, Britain was probably the, the most loathsome actor in the whole affair. But yeah, that's a, that's another subject. Um, the other thing to talk about with Angleton is how he had this mole hunt that he was obsessed with for many years. Um, he, there was this Soviet defector named Galitsyn, uh, who claimed that the KGB had a very high level, uh, mole placed in the intelligence community named Sasha or codenamed Sasha. And, uh, Angleton really bought into this idea. He believed that it was there and he investigated many people. Um, destroyed people's careers. Not that I really, you know, give a shit too much about a spook's career being uh, destroyed. Um, but he never really came up with anything. And then the other thing is that uh, later you had another defector. Well, okay, so one of the things that Galitzin said was that uh, after him, the KGB would send other defectors and they would all be agents. <laughs> they would all be, they would all be moles, you know? Um, so another prominent defector comes up, this guy named Yuri Nisenko. What does Nisenko say? Nisenko says that he's the real deal and Galitsyn is the disinformation agent. I mean, the fact that 
Angleton trusted Galitsyn actually leads me to believe that it was that Nisenko was correct. But it's just kind of funny. And this is the this would be a very great thing to exploit for the novel too, because the inherent epistemological problem that this raises, you know, it's just it'd be a fascinating thing to explore. Um but anyway, uh, what else? I mean, the other thing that the book credits Angleton with is uh, being the founder of the United States mass surveillance program against its own citizens. Uh, basically, this was a, a mail opening program, you know. Uh, and this fed into COINTELPRO and Operation Chaos in the 60s where they were trying to infiltrate um, anti-war movement, student movement, bl the uh, black nationalist movements, particularly um, Black Panthers, uh, people like that. So, uh, yeah, again, uh, really influential guy. And at the end of his life, he, what has he accomplished? You know, a lot of this stuff started coming out in the 70s, and you had the church committee hearings, which... Uh, revealed the MK Ultra program and that's another area to explore like what was his degree of complicity with MK Ultra certainly some there's some sense in which he must have known had some connection to it um, but yeah just every awful thing that came out of the CIA Angleton had some involvement in does he strike me as an evil man no, tragically misguided, probably. He certainly had evil effects. He was probably a true believer in what he was doing. And perhaps those are the people who do the worst of all. At the end of his life, he had alienated his wife. He had aided and abetted Soviet agents. He had established what I think is a very one-sided, unprofitable, exploitative relationship between the United States government and the state of Israel. He had set horrible precedents in terms of the respect for rights that the U.S. government and its attendant intelligence agencies show for its own citizens. Um, I forget how this the book puts it, but essentially because of timing and some other things, the Angleton was not prosecuted for this uh, issue of, of looking into people's mail, and this came up again in the Bush, uh, the Bush administration's uh, surveillance program under the Patriot Act, and uh, because that precedent had been established because of the Angleton case, uh, now we have just un unlimited spying against everybody. It's just an ins insane situation. So yeah, I'll probably probably kind of wrap it up here. Um, Oh, yeah. Another weird thing is that his daughters became Sikhs. 
don't know what's up with that, but it's probably just it's probably an example of uh, these kids from <clears throat> rich, influential families kind of going off the reservation and kind of rebelling against, you know, their their parents who are like the establishment and the man, and they have to become radicals of some kind or another. Uh, or or maybe maybe he was, you know. He was utilizing them in some way. Maybe they, they were going to set up some sort of Sikh terrorist thing. I don't know, some false flag. Who knows? You get kind of paranoid when you read about this stuff. Um, yeah, so The Ghost, pretty good book. You know, if you like spy stuff, you're interested in CIA, you'll probably enjoy it. Um, it's weird to be fascinated by this personality that you don't think is evil per se, but you think has just un, unimaginably negative impact on history. Um, so yeah, something to think about. Maybe I'll write this book in my old age. Or maybe I'll get into orchid growing instead. Anyway, thanks for listening.